0: Today's program, made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. recognize that music? It's one of the favorites of our guests today. And I always like to get filmmakers on our show because I think they share a unique perspective on film music. And today, I'm delighted that I've gotten someone who has been prolific in making films. As a professor of film at a university in Canada, he's overseen over 2,000 short films. He's been a juror on numerous film festivals around the world. He's won several awards for his writing and directing for films like Hugh Jackman Saves the World, and what Life Gives You Lemons, and then finally he wrote a film called Copenhagen Road. His directorial, uh, de- directorial uh, debut for Features is currently out right now, and it's called The Pineville Heist. I hope all of you will join me in welcoming Lee Chambers to the program. Hi, Lee. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I appreciate you taking time to, to join us today. Uh, another guest from north of the border Uh, we've you're not our first canadian so i hope that doesn't bother you or anything but uh i'm I'm interested in learning more about you and uh and the the film vibe in in canada and also to talk about your favorite scores because i love some of the choices that you've made um we always kind of start off by by asking our guest to just tell us a little bit about yourself outside of the film bit maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about you know growing up and Family and you know what your hobbies were and things like that as you were getting into adulthood.
1: Uh, well, you know, I, I, growing up in Canada was great. Um, we had I had a good childhood. We did a lot of camping when I was a kid. Got a chance to uh, be out in the outdoors a lot. And uh, uh, you know, I'm not musically inclined, um, but I I remember when I was a child, my parents took me to uh, guitar lessons. And uh, I could barely get my hand around the guitar and the, uh, the person who was, uh, teaching me or trying to teach me, told my parents, you know, maybe, you know, come back in a year or two when his, when his, when he's grown a little bit and his fingers can get around the, the neck of the guitar. And and I never went back. I kind of regret that. Cause I, I think it'd be mm-hmm. cool to be a guitarist, but, uh, so I wasn't, so I didn't, I never went back and I never learned how to do, uh, you know, how to read music, uh, I did get into singing. Singing was something that I did uh, uh, and actually did really well at where I, I, you know, when I was like 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, I entered singing contests in our, in our region in Canada. Hmm. And, and I did it three years and I came first, no, four years. I did. I came first, twice, second, and a third out of like 60, 70 kids. So wow. I got good jobs as a singer, <laughs> but I never
0: became a pop star or recorded an album. Well, nothing's stopping you now, is it, these days? I mean, you could just go ahead and record your own and put it on YouTube and you're done. That's it. That's what's so amazing about how things have changed in the, you know, just really in the relatively recent past. Oh, I <laughs> so know. So you didn't pursue singing, and uh, but uh, then you went to, a, I'm assuming, did you go to university yourself? And
1: Yeah, I've, I've got a, uh, a three year graphic design advertising art diploma from Canada, and then I did a, a post grad film. Uh, program in Leeds at Leeds Metropolitan University in England. Uh, dual passport, huh. so I've, I've got the uh, the British and the Canadian passport. So, oh really? Now, what's what's the story behind that? Briefly, I'm I'm curious. Well, my parents emigrated to Canada in the early '60s, and uh, okay. the rules are that as the uh, first uh, first generation uh, of my uh, they don't. It's very sexist. They, they don't they don't care about the mother. They care about the father, and and uh, I have the ability to apply for a British passport. So I found out about that in the nineties. Someone said, "Oh yeah, you can get a passport." And so, sure enough, I inquired about it, uh, applied, and then uh, and then literally I went a back, backpack around Europe in in my twenties, and then decided to go back. I was I decided to go back for six months just to. There's a thing about, I think, when you travel where you, you feel like um, a tourist for if you only go for a few weeks or a month. But af- after six months, you feel like you belong there. So I wanted right. to go live in England for at least
0: six months. And uh, I ended up staying eight years. <laughs> well, that's interesting, too. That does give you flexibility because you don't have to worry about trying to apply for a visa or anything like that. If you wanted to move to England, you could just do it. I just, go. That's it. just go.
1: I miss England. I mean, I like being in England, but, you know, it's crazy,
0: crazy times right now. With uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, it is indeed everything going on. <laughs> well, um, that's interesting. So and then you, and then how was it? Well, you know, we'll get to that later. Let's let's go ahead and dive into one of your uh, selections uh, of films, film cues that you had chosen. Uh, your first one, I I adore it. I love this film and, and the score. It's so unique and different. I think it might have been his second mainstream film. I'm not sure. We're, the film we're talking about is Blade Runner and the composer we're talking about is Vangelis. Uh, tell us a little bit about why this made your uh, list of favorites.
1: Um, Blade Runner came out in 1982. I was 12 years old, so I'm totally dating myself. And I think anyone <laughs> my age uh, sees Blade Runner, at least filmmakers, see Blade Runner as a landmark film film. That if you look at other films from say nineteen nineteen eighty at that early eighty period, if you look at those films now, a lot of them look dated. They uh, they look like they're from the time. But if you watch Blade Runner um, today, it still holds up, uh, even with all the fact that there are most of its physical effects rather than digital effects, and they had to do everything they could to try to create that dystopian world. They. Uh, it's amazing how it holds up. And I think the score from Vangelis is just haunting and um, incredibly adds to the atmosphere of Ridley mm. Scott's world um, uh, for Blade Runner. It's, you know, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing score. Yeah, Vangelis, and, you know, obviously, I think um, Ridley Scott would have picked Vangelis because the year earlier he did chariots of fire. And right. I was re listening to the, the the score for chariots of fire. And there are hints, there are hints and notes from the chariots of fire um, theme that you can almost hear are also in the blade runner blues theme that Van wrote. And I, I'm sure Ridley mm-hmm. heard, watched, watched chariots Man. of fire. And said, I want that guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it probably yeah, could very well have been the case. Well, we'll, uh, we'll give this a listen. Oddly enough, too, do you recall what year it was supposed to take place?
1: Uh, it's like now.
0: Yeah, <laughs> basically. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, it's either 2019 or 2017. I can't remember which. I think it's 2019. It was, which I is bizarre. I, yeah, it's bizarre because I remember when it came out and I thought, oh, wow, that's, you know, it could be like that by then. Ooh. Now here I am. I'm living through it and it's nothing like that, fortunately. <laughs> Let's have a listen. This is a cue from... Blade Runner, Uh, the cue is called Blade Runner Blues, and it's written by composer Vangelis. So what what got you uh what you got you interested in film then I mean you you mentioned a little bit about it but I mean you ultimately to where you became a, a professor of film studies I guess so what was it that that got you interested in film to begin with? Uh, I've always been a
1: storyteller, uh, you know. Growing up in Canada, you uh, you know, in the seventies you know, and eighties, you didn't have access to being a filmmaker. Um, you know, films when they were shot on film stock and that's really only been in the last 10 years that things completely changed around um, where suddenly we move to digital capture formats. Um, You know, so if you wanted to make a film, you needed a, you know, a big camera and you needed to call Kodak or Fuji and get film stock and then negotiate getting developing and processing. And then you, Mm -hmm. you know, they shoot on one format of the picture and they record sound in the other. And how do you get the two of them together? And it was a very uh, complicated and expensive process. And obviously, things have changed now. But um, I remember in it being a teenager where video cameras were out. And um, my parents uh, rented a video camera uh, to uh, record my grandfather's birthday. My grandparents came over to visit in, uh, uh, from England. And we re- rented this video camera. And I ran around with that thing basically tied to my hand and um recorded and and tried and experimented with it and had a lot of fun with it and i think that was really this this thing where it was like wow this is be be fun i mean i was kind of in front of the camera behind the camera kind of doing everything and uh, right with no training whatsoever but you know just trying to be entertaining um yeah, because there's a big difference between watching movies and making movies, right and I think people who watch movies just think people you know, stick a camera in front of something and that stuff happens and oh. uh, it, it's 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 way more involved in that and uh when I went to England and did the film program it was demystifying that process and and explaining the differences for how you actually craft a film out of out of nothing but at at the essence i'm a storyteller I have stories inside me, and I think everybody does. The the trick is is um learning the path for how to get it out of your head and into uh, a piece of paper or a word processor or final draft and then onto uh, a set and then into an editing suite and then onto a big screen that's a, a very involved process that most people don't understand
0: yeah i my uh well there were a couple of times way back in the late 80s and then once uh, then here fairly recently i was on film sets for the first time, and I had I had no idea. I mean, I thought I had an idea, but I really didn't have any idea of uh, how much work goes into just just a single camera angle for a single scene. And you know that's why now I guess what is it? Uh, uh, well, on TV shows, I think they try to do seven to eight pages of scripts a day, and on film, it's like maybe three if you're lucky. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And 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 after you know sitting through and watching the process, you kind of understand. How that goes about? Well, let's yes, let's dive into another Q of yours. You had uh, uh, I, I love this movie, both the original and the remake. Uh, the film I am talking about is Ocean's Eleven. This is the the more recent one, uh, directed by Steven sodberg You were interested in uh, playing the uh, the opening credits from that, written by David Holmes. Tell us tell us a little bit about uh, your choosing that for your list of favorites. Uh, Ocean's Eleven, yeah, it came out in 1999, It's so it's like 21
1: years old. Uh, and obviously they made a couple of sequels and then they made a, 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 a the female version, Ocean's Eight, but uh, um, Soderbergh, um, he worked with uh, David Holmes on this, on all three of the movies, and actually he's worked with Soderbergh on a, f- a couple other movies, Out of Sight and um, Logan Lucky. Uh, it's just got this great, funky vibe, um, and it's to me oceans 11 is one of my these guilty pleasures i have where if i happen to turn on the tv and oceans 11 on uh, i'm for the next nine minutes even though i've seen it many times i sit down and watch it again um you know it's one of those films where you know all the dialogue and you know all the musical cues and uh the music just drives this crime um the, the it just drives the the plot forward so so nicely. Introduce there's musical cues for all of the different characters in it. Um, you know, there's 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 two tracks that I gave you as a suggestion one's the opening credits, and the other is the scene where we introduce Matt Damon, which is just it's just it's just funky. It's just a funky track. The whole the whole score is funky. <laughs> it's fun, well, right? It's a fun, it's such a yeah. fun score.
0: Did you happen to see the original uh, with I the have seen the original, and Martin Arnold? Yeah, yeah. yeah. obviously, have, it's, know,
1: it's a different. It's got a completely different different vibe. Like I say, it's, like you say, I enjoy both of them, but the uh, Ocean's the, the newer version for me is uh, it
0: resonates more. Okay, well let's have a, uh, let's have a listen. This is the opening credits from the film Ocean's Eleven, and it's written by David Holmes. So here you are. You're taking an interest in uh, in film. You you uh, your first experience with a video camera and how that kind of got you interested in the whole thing. So what I'm curious about is why did you become a a college film professor instead of you know actually working in the industry full time? I, I mean, or maybe maybe there's not a reason for it, but I'm just kind of curious. Why didn't you go after the gig full time as opposed to doing it as a as a professorship?
1: Well, um, part of it is, as a director, it's uh, being a director is uh, it's difficult in that you need to uh, you know budgets. You need money uh, to to make films, yeah. and um, getting to that level where you are making um, getting to the level where you are making money, good money at it, is is difficult. Everybody needs a day job, right? If you go to Hollywood, whatever all the waiters are actors, right? Yeah. Um, right. and so, uh, the, the same, the same thing is, is, uh, I think for, for a, a director, um, before people will trust you with a budget, um, you know, whether it's millions of dollars or, or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, they, uh, you might make a few you might make some money mm-hmm. on it and then uh, and then you're out of work waiting for the next gig so you might direct a movie a year or every two years what do you do in between? you need a job right you need to put food on your 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 table sure. so well so, um, yeah teaching was great because it, it gave me an opportunity to still um, be involved with the filmmaking process while at the same time developing my own stuff and uh, and, and so it, it, I, I never felt like I wasn't doing my my job. The other thing is, you know, I'm a writer as well. So um, right now, I just I do a tremendous amount of writing. Um, um, you know, over the last three or four months, I've written two feature films, two short films wow. so, for paying clients. So, uh, so I can excellent. Uh, I can work at home and also get paid for what I do.
0: Yeah, well, you know, being in the the acting profession myself uh, and uh, in the pretty big large community here in Louisiana, it's become a kind of a hotspot for filmmaking and TV. I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, There's a few of them that, that, you know, make their living full time doing it, but even those that I would consider, you know, moderately successful or, still have a side hustle of some sort. Uh, So yeah, that's the reality. I mean, which a lot of people don't really fully realize is that uh, there'll be occasions where you'll see people, I mean, you know, you know, the ones who are making a living off it and doing nothing else, but there's a lot of, A lot of great talent out there that they got to fill in the gaps in between. And, you know, that's just the harsh reality of it. But what I'm what I'm curious about is now, how does. Now, let me ask it now, how does it how does one become a a professor of film? I mean, was there was there a particular area of study that you had to uh, complete? Um, I I think you mentioned that earlier, but I'm just kind of fill that in again for me.
1: Well, I mean, the college system, and it's a, a trade school, so um, it's different. It's not necessarily academic like it is in university. So oh, okay. in, a, in a trade school, you are, uh, they want people who know, actually know how to do things, right? And so to physically show somebody how to do things or to, to uh, get your hands dirty and actually do things uh, directly rather than the theory side of things, which is more of a university kind of uh, uh, process.
0: Okay, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. And and is it you have a lot of people that are uh, uh, pursuing that and uh, taking the the instruction that you have available? Well, you Pretty know what, I think
1: in, in uh, I think globally, I think filmmaking and um, and media is hugely popular. I mean, just I think around the world. I mean, I remember when I was in England at the Leeds Metropolitan University, which well, is now Leeds Beckett. Um, I think at the time there was about thirty five kind of film, practical film programs within the UK, um, just in the UK. And so you you imagine globally and around the world, you know, that uh, there's a lot of people who uh, are interested in it. And I think, you know, what's fin- funny is I think a lot of people are interested in film because they think it's going to be easy, <laughs> right? They they think oh, it just be fun, right? Like, if I'm going to be yeah. a doctor, I'm going to spend the next 10 years or, or, or so learning about medical stuff and and that's a lot of studying and whatever and they think well you know i'll do film and they just think you know i like watching movies so i'll do film it'll be it'll be easy and it's again as i mentioned it's it's not it's not really easy it's it's actually
0: probably just as much work Um, yeah absolutely and but but you know your your point earlier was a big part of it too i think that became the the technology became such that uh you know if you had a mobile phone you could make a movie i mean when it when it gets to that point Everybody's a, a potential filmmaker, so it's uh, it's really changed the industry quite a bit. It's it's amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, it has, but but the, I, the, the the
1: the thing is, the technology is great, but it's like um, uh, you know, you have a pen and a paper, and you can be a writer and you can write, and just just because you create a word processing pro- program doesn't make you a better writer. It's just a tool, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like I can throw a camera in your hand, but if you have no concept of framing or good framing or, you know, how to hold the camera steady and how to get a good shot or how to light it, um, just because you have the camera and the tool in your hand doesn't actually make you better at it.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. One of the cues that you had chosen was, and I'm ashamed to say, I, I, I mean, I remember, in fact, if I remember right, I can see the poster for this movie, but I don't think I ever saw the film. The film I'm talking about is the is the Island. Um, was it? Did this have Michael Caine in it? No, it didn't. Gosh, it's I, another I, I, Island. I
1: know what you mean? There's another movie called the I think what, that was called the Island. Oh, okay,
0: I yeah. I, now that I see it, yes, thousand five. So, anyway, so I'm not familiar with this with this film at all. If you would kind of tell me a little bit about your thinking of putting this on your list of favorites,
1: uh, it's a, again another guilty pleasure. Um, it's a movie that is. Um, and to me, the score—it's uh, his score—is something that drives it totally. Kind of like Ocean's Eleven. I, I think the, the the movies, the one of my, some of my favorite movies, are ones where I am totally enamored and immersed in in the score. And uh, Stephen Jablonski, who who did the music for uh, the Island, is a Michael Bay movie. It's about cloning. Uh, it's got Ewan McGregor in it. Um, and uh, it's, but it's visually, it's a visually striking movie. It's it's, it's just got such vivid colors in it. Um, I just really like the, the story about clones who don't realize they're clones who are trying to escape or whatever. And, uh, and but the score is just wicked. <laughs> it just, yeah. it all the way through is just, it's, it's just really vibrant, um, really layered. Um, he's using lots of different sounds. Um, from electronic to or orchestral kind of sounds, and layering them all in there, and 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 it's it's one of these things where it's heavy. I call it, it's like heavy music, but you can almost see every layer or hear every layer. Um, huh. It's not like it's it's you know because sometimes things can be um, they can be they're so full of sounds, but they're all sort of on the same wavelength, and you kind of get lost in it. and And his music just seems to be you can feel every nuance. And uh, I really
0: like it. Okay. Now now I'm interested in hearing it for sure. The the composer, and I'm not familiar with him, Steven Jablonski, I guess, is how it might be pronounced?
1: Yeah, Steven Jablonski. He also did the 2003 version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, He contributed to Team America, World Police, Desperate Housewives. And then he's done, he's actually worked for Hans Zimmer's uh, music company. um, Oh, okay. And currently there's a company called Remote Control Productions that right. uh, Hans Zimmer does.
0: So he's kind of a protege of Hans Zimmer. Okay, good. Well, let's have a listen to this. Again, the cue's is from the film The Island, and this is uh, going to be the end credits. Let's have a listen. I'll get back to the program in a minute. I'm curious, are you enjoying today's episode and the 50-plus others that we've uh, also produced? I hope so. And if you are enjoying it, uh, I want you to consider becoming a patron of the show. By uh, small monthly contributions as little as $3 a month, will make you an official producer of the show with some neat extras involved. I hope you'll check it out. Uh, you'll find it at patreon.com, and that's spelled P-A-T. R E O N dot com. To find out about our our show and our uh, options for you, you go to patreon dot com slash what's the score, which is all one word. Patreon dot com slash what's the score. Please visit patreon dot com. So, I mean, obviously you took an interest in film music and and I'm filmmaking. I'm sorry. Uh, And that it was interesting how you were telling the story when you were growing up about, you know, maybe learning the guitar. So there obviously was some kind of an end being a singer. So there was obviously some kind of interest in music. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your journey of uh, filmmaking and and film scores, how they married together. And what was it that kind of piqued your interest in, in film music in particular?
1: Well, uh, when I make a film, whether it's a short or a feature, um, it's really important. Like Music is really important to me because you're creating a, a story on the big screen with actors and we see that. And then you, you layer it in with all the sound effects and the, the, the sound design. But then it's the music that really drives the emotion of the, of the movie. That's what really pulls everything together because i when you watch a rough cut or even a fine cut of a movie without music it's
0: dead (laughs) like it's amazing isn't it
1: yeah and you stick a different piece of music in the right place at the right time if you get the right composer creating something for it it just pops it just it, it just comes alive um and so that you know so music is really really just important i like i just hear people who they make short films And then they just get library music and stick it under. And now there's other people that might might be using the same music. And you know what? You may find a nice bit of library music that actually works really well, but it's not, I don't think any one bit of library music is going to be perfect for the stuff that you create. I mean, if I'm going to spend the time making an original movie, I want to have an original score that's specific to my work together and married together as as one that's 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 really really important um to me and so i always build into the production time the the time that a composer
0: needs to actually create that score right now do you i think i i I probably already know what you'll say but i'm going to ask it anyway do you want your composers are you looking for them to try to capture what the what the emotions of the characters are or or what people what the audience is seeing on the screen I, I give make- my composers
1: a, a tremendous amount of latitude I put a lot of trust in the composers I mean I've had some uh, collaborations with some co- composers over a number of films where um, I uh, I might give a, a sense of, of, of what I want so um, I don't have the uh, I don't have the terminology or understand um, in depth what a composer might be thinking about a movie in terms of, you know, I'll use the oboe here because I think that'll help represent this or that or whatever. I don't understand music in that way. But Mm -hmm. uh, like, like I say, the the tracks that I'm playing to me really resonate to me. And so when I have, when I, when I have a movie that needs a score, I might go and dip into to something and I might just send a composer five or six tracks and go, I like, you know, this part of this. I like that part of that. This is this is this is why I like certain things for the, the film. And then I literally let them go off and do it. And most of the time I don't interfere that much. Um, oh, I'll, know whether, love you I'll know whether it works or not. I'll know whether it works or not. Like the composers have sent me the tracks, and I've kind of synced them up and watched them and listened to them, and and uh, ninety nine times out of hundred, I go great. <laughs> like you know what yeah. I mean? I get. I yeah. just. Put, I put my trust in them. Uh, to, to. That's to get, great. Yeah.
0: A lot of composers would love that. Do you do you temp track your your films at all? Do you try to, you know, put in some temp tracks from other movies and those sorts of things to give a. Uh, A feel for the composer as to not only what kind of music you want, but also spotting it and when you want music in and coming out and that sort of thing? Uh, Yes, sometimes.
1: Sometimes. I mean, I've worked with editors or I've done editing. Um, I find when I, I I might use a temp track to get the pacing of a, of a scene. um, But sometimes what I'll do is uh, I don't want, I, I, it helps with the pacing, but I don't want my composure to be influenced by the temp music. So I might strip it out of the, the cut and then go, here it is. And no, then I, okay. I, so they don't, they don't, cause sometimes they can be too influenced by it. Right. And then sometimes a filmmaker can be too married to the temp music and,
0: and they don't, they have a hard time getting themselves away from the temp music. So uh-huh. It's interesting you say that. I'm actually in the process. I think some of my listeners know I've been doing this. There's a there's a film that I'm uh, that I'm in. I actually have a lead role in it and the uh, director has been kind enough to to let me have a little bit of say so as as for the film music. Now, I am not a I'm not a composer. I don't even I can't read music. I know nothing about it. But when I put in the I put in a bunch of temp tracks, and the director was actually really impressed. She said, "Wow, you really get this." I said, "Well, thank you." I mean, I like to think I do. So there's been a couple of people that have written music for it now. And this, I'm coming to your point is that while I like what they've done, it's like, oh, why couldn't they do what I put in there? Why? You know, I, I've gotten really married to the temp tracks I put in there. So I see your point. You almost yeah. lose your objectivity. You get so attached to what you temp tracked it with. And, and obviously you can't use that music because it's already been done for something else and someone else owns it. So, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. You say that I agree. You can get married to it. Uh you were mentioning Hans Zimmer earlier. Let's let's look at him. I mean, I'm not surprised he made your list. He's on a list of a lot of people these days. Uh, the film we're talking about is Rush. This was directed by Ron Howard, who I think Hans has done a couple of projects for. Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, choosing this for your uh, on your list of favorites. Well, Hans Zimmer is like a legend, right? He's like
1: John Williams, right? You know, John Williams, prolific. Um, composer and Hans Zimmer is now in, I would say in that league.
2: I think Mm -hmm. there's a
1: lot of other films that people might, would would probably pick more than Rush. I mean, there's all the uh, Christopher Nolan movies like interstellar interception, Dunkirk, Dark Knight, all these movies that he's done, Pirates of the Caribbean, all these movies, Lion King, but uh, Rush for me, A, I'm a big formula one fan. So, I mean, I think Ron Howard did a really good uh, job of capturing um, the, uh, the 70s um, with Formula One um, with this movie. And it was one of these things I remember watching when I saw Rush. I remember at the end of it going, who, who did the score? Like, I didn't know it was Hans Zimmer. I didn't really it didn't click to me that it was Hans Zimmer. And I remember coming out of the cinema saying to myself, I, I think Rush, I think that year should have been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. It didn't. And I thought that Hans Zimmer should definitely have been nominated for Academy Award for the score. And he didn't. Wow. Which is interesting because the track that I picked is called "Lost but One," um, <laughs> um, so it's actually he, you know, he didn't win, um, but it's the he good, did a good job of capturing the 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 energy of Formula One in terms of um, the power of the vehicles and the, the 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 rush of it. But then the movie also has a character story; it it also becomes very like almost uh, the, the the battle between two two Formula One drivers, and it, it actually pulls back from and showcases the showcases the the personalities of two larger than life characters, and it makes it a lot more personal. So we go from high energy to very suddenly very subtle music, um, and almost like a Formula One car, which can go from zero to hundred super fast. It can also go It can also break very fast and go down to almost nothing really fast. So
0: he captures that really, really well. Okay, let's have a listen. This is again a cue from the film called Rush. The cue is called "Lost by One," and it's written by Hans Zimmer. I think, uh, with all the advances in technology, do you think films has it positively impacted filmmaking, or has it somehow, you know, maybe deterred it, or, or I don't know how it is. I'm trying to ask. I I guess I'm just wondering. Do you think it's gotten better or worse as a result of of technology?
1: I think I kind of mentioned it earlier. I just I just think there's a lot of people who think that because the technology is there that they are instantly filmmakers you have programs that can um automatically do stuff now like you know the the, people on youtube making videos where they think they're amazing because they've got this special effect in it but in fact uh it's just a plug-in on an app or yeah it you you haven't actually created anything. You've you've just pointed the camera at something and the app is doing all of the work and, and, and creating things partially for you. And I I I just think there's a danger of we lose a sense of the development of a film and the writing of a film and and which hasn't changed, right? I mean that's that's a really important point to make is that the technology has changed drastically, but you know, I you know, when I write I use final draft to write and it takes care of a lot of the formatting quite nicely but Man. if i didn't have final draft i, I could still write a f- script uh, even if i just had a pen and a piece of paper um, um the technology makes things easier but it doesn't necessarily make me more creative um it doesn't make me tell a better story it doesn't make me create interesting characters with conflicts wait um,
0: and you know what's interesting re- go ahead i, I, I was just going to say though that the 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 GCI, the, the, it worries me that that's kind of almost taken over, uh, films. I mean, one of the reasons why my listeners know I'm a big James Bond fan until recently, one of the things I always liked about the Bond films is that when you saw something amazing happen or a stunt, someone really did that. Someone really, really did that. It wasn't, you know, smoke and mirrors with a bunch of computer graphics. Now they've kind of changed here a little bit, but I, I, I worry that some, you know, if well, if we can do it on, on the computer, then let's go ahead and do it. I, I saw a great application for commercials for for that kind of technology. But in movies, I, I kind of miss the the realism because you can sometimes you I mean, I know that it looks real, but, you know, darn well, it's not it's not physics says it won't it can't work or you can't do this. And so it to me, it just loses a little bit of something. I don't, I don't know if you feel the same way or not. Oh, yeah. If you can make something and
1: do it physically in camera, it looks so much better. It's interesting you mentioned the Bond movies. One, I, a friend of mine that I met at a film festival um, years ago, his uh, name's Paul Weston, and he, he's been a stuntman, um, and he worked on t- 12 Bond movies uh um, doubling for Roger Moore and 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 even being in some of the newer, I think Spectre was the last one that I think he uh, he, he worked on, and he would tell stories about how you know you know, um, you know Roger Moore as James Bond has to jump from this cable car to that cable car, and you know nowadays it would be you know it would just be on a studio green screen, right? And it's like and he's like you know as a stuntman he's physically having to do this stuff, right? <laughs> like and they're risking themselves. There's no net, go for it. <laughs> And he just told these great stories about, uh, what it was like to be in a stunt man in, uh, in, you know, in the sixties, seventies and eighties where, uh, where they really did put their life on the line. Um, oh, yeah. uh, every, every day because they were physically trying to do things because they couldn't do things in, in post. What worries me about, well, not worries me, but there was a, uh, Denzel Washington movie, um, uh, Call I can't remember the name of it now, but, but there's basically there's a shot of Denzel Washington standing in New Jersey with the with the skyline of New York behind him, and you wouldn't know it unless you you, you watch the behind the scenes. But they didn't get a chance to shoot it on location, so they just stuck a green screen up in the studio and put the plate of New York in the background. So oh, yeah, it's not just the the big explosions and the things that are obviously effects. It could be anything now, like. Actors could
0: be well. You know, or, uh, uh, so many things are done on green. An example I'm familiar with is that I uh, uh, I, I was I was a, a, a part of the background crew on a film called Magnificent Seven, which also had Denzel Washington in. It. I mean this this was filmed in the middle of a of a field in uh, in uh, Louisiana in the middle of summer. And we talking and it literally was getting to be about a hundred degrees with some incredible humidity. So I mean it was just miserable conditions. But if you watch it on the uh, the final product, uh what's so interesting, you look on the background, there's all these snow capped mountains and trees and stuff. There was nothing like that in the background of where <laughs> we were really doing it. But it but it I must admit, it did look real. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, they anyway, can do- <laughs> yeah, it it truly is. And I don't know if it's if it's make, gonna make people lazier or I'm just interested in how it's kind of affecting things, and surely there have been some positive uh, things as a result. But I, I also think sometimes it, you might be losing something too. Um, another cue you chose is, is another favorite of mine. I don't like all his work, but I, I do like a, a, a couple of his uh, a couple of these films. That sounded like this one. I'm, I'm talking about uh, the film. I'm talking about is American Beauty. Uh, the composer is Thomas Newman, and you had chosen the main theme, and I can already hear it in my head right now. Uh, I loved that. That and uh, it was Scent of a Woman, I think was another one he did, that I, I loved the sounds he created for those. Uh, tell us a little bit about choosing that for your list of favorites. You know, from the opening of that movie, uh,
1: it's just such a catchy score. I mean, it's so stripped down and so simple but it is just, it just, I, at the, you know, I came out of that movie. It's like the, 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 I just could, I was like humming the, 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 the theme. It was just there. It just, and you know, and, and that's, and that's where, you know, you, you got you Thomas Newman, you know, basically taking the, the, the movie that uh, Sam Mendes directed, which talked about the simplicity of that bag, just floating around in the wind. And he just took that, kind of idea and put it into the, put it into the music that, but it's amazing how simple the score is and yet how, 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 how amazing you can, it, it just gets into your bones. Right. One of the things I loved about uh, Thomas Newman is he is such a prolific. He's like, kind of like uh, Hans Zimmer. He's so prolific as a, as a, as a composer. Um, I mean, he did uh, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, Skyfall, um, um, he worked with Sam Mendes on 1917, Finding Nemo. Right. He's got he's got 15 Oscar nominations without a win. <laughs> he's he's yeah. like most nominations and without winning one, <laughs> and he he definitely deserves one one of these days for sure, it, even an honorary one because I think he's he's really he's he's been a part of some iconic movies over the years.
0: Yeah, and if I I, I suspect that if it uh, if it comes to that, he would. They would very easily give him an honorary one, but he'll his time will come. I mean, it's uh, John Williams very much the same way. I mean, I I, and I think he's won five, but he's I don't know what got seventy nominations or something crazy like that. So he's yeah. in good company, I, you know, as far as ratios are concerned. So uh, for I sure, I know. To you're gonna, so back. you're
1: gonna play you're gonna play the American Beauty track, and I, the other I know you won't play it, but just for your listeners, there's also a movie called The Adjustment Bureau. Um, which had Matt Damon in it. He did the score for that, and there's almost a similarity in simplistic. Simplistic piano, nicely layered kind of music. So uh, if you listen to the American Beauty track and then you listen to the, the, the main theme for the Adjustment Bureau, you can really tell that it, that's who it is, that, that Thomas Newman has
0: a, a unique style. Yeah, yeah, he does indeed. Let's, uh, let's listen to this again from uh, American Beauty, uh, and the f- track is the... Uh, uh, the main titles, and it's written by Thomas Newman. vibe like in Canada for filmmaking right now I mean I know that uh, I know that Vancouver has kind of gotten to be a, a big hub and Toronto I guess has as well uh, they're gaining popularity and being a, a places for for filmmakers television shows to go what's the vibe there right now and I, I realize you know the time we're recording this folks it's we're still in the middle of this virus thing. So I realize maybe currently, right now, today, it may be uh, subdued, but but just in general, thinking about but the pattern where it's been going and where you th- expect it to come back to, what's what's the vibe like? Is it going to continue to grow? Uh, well, the film industry in Canada was growing and and
1: uh, and should continue to grow. I mean, Canada uh, is kind of like Louisiana in that you guys have tax breaks, and so does Canada. So. Um, in okay. America, I know Louisiana and uh, and Georgia have really good tax breaks, which which draws in a lot of the productions. In uh, in Canada, is the the, the same way. You know, various provinces across Canada um, have really good tax breaks. So, the Canadian dollar compared to the American dollar uh, is different. So, you know, one American dollar is worth about a buck twenty five, and so then you save twenty five percent on the dollar, and then you come in and you could make. 20, 30, 40, 30% on a tax break. So it's very lucrative for American producers to come into Canada and shoot. And, you know, a lot of Americans don't realize that a ton of the content that you, that America sees is actually created in Canada. I mean, I you yeah. watch, watch almost any movie and to wait till the end of the screen and you'll see the, whether it's the Quebec tax credit or the, um, Ontario tax credit, where they've done either some shooting there or they've done produ- post production in, uh, right. in in Canada. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of Canada, made with Canadian crews and Canadian directors, that uh, Americans watch and think they're watching an American um, American content. It might be funded by American, but it might be made in Canada.
0: Right, and and uh, I take it there's a there's a a, a big enough pool of actors and, you know, crew members and, and people of the like that, uh, it could all, it could be an all Canadian production if need be, I guess. Right.
1: Oh, for sure. I know in Toronto, there's a, um, there's Cinespace studios, which is the largest independent film studios in North America. I think they have a, they have a location in Chicago as well, and they're just dying for space. Uh, I mean, they're doing a lot of, um, big shows, like whether it's TV shows for Netflix and Hulu or in movies and stuff like that, they're like building and building more in, in Toronto because uh, they've got the studios are banging on the door, trying to come in to shoot in Canada.
0: Okay. That's good to hear. And I think it, yeah, I think it's going to continue to to flourish. And I, and I, am I right that the two major hotspots are basically Toronto and Vancouver? Is that, Accurate. pretty
1: much. Yeah, I I'd say pretty much that's where they are. You know, you're going to have a lot of the talent that's going to live there as uh, live there as well. But I mean, there's there's filmmaking all across Canada, you know, but right. uh, but yeah, those are the two main spots.
0: And and where are you based? I I don't know if I ever really figured that out. Are... Oh, I w- I was based in Ontario, so but I'm I'm moving around all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're kind of like what I used to say. I'm just I'm, I'm, I move every so often, so the police don't catch up with me or something. That's a, that's it. That's a joke, audience. That's a joke. <laughs> um, let's see. I the the other question I wanted to ask you too is that what kind of a criteria? What kind of a criteria do you use when you're choosing a composer for one of your projects? I mean, I, I I fully realize that you probably would want, you know, if you had the budget for it, you'd like to get a Hans Zimmer or Thomas Newman or something like that, but you don't. So what is it that you look for in, in making a decision for a composer, you know, outside of budget, obviously, that you can afford them? What are the other things you're looking for, Other qualities?
1: Well, you know what? Um, I get a lot of emails from budding uh, composers um, well, I get them for all sorts of people, whether it's camera people, writers, other people, but I get a right. lot of composers who will send me emails out of the blue, who will just be like, you know, I just graduated from a, a school and I, um, I, you know, I, here's my tracks, you know, you can go onto, uh, onto sound, onto a, on a sound thing where you can listen to my tracks. And, and most, you know, the thing is I'm, most of the year I don't need a composer, right? But every now and then I need a composer and and I kind of look through, um, I kind of, uh, I look through uh, the emails that I have and I listen to, the, to them. So it, the, the audition, I guess, is not really even talking to them. The audition is just listening to their work and going, oh, I really like that. And then I reach out to them. I mean, the, the, the most recent one that, uh, well, over the last, no, 10 years or so was a composer named Fabio Acri, was an Italian composer who just emailed me out of the blue right when I needed a, a composer, like literally huh. serendipit- serendipitously just suddenly just showed up in my inbox and I had right. directed this short film called When Life Gives You Lemons, a little eight minute short film and I needed sort of a Disney-ish kind of happy, upbeat kind of score and was thinking, okay, so where am I going to get where am I going to get my score? And then in my inbox pops this email and I had to listen to the work. I said, Oh, that's really good. And, <laughs> and literally within a day, like, you know, it's like, you know, he emails me, I email him back. Here's a, here's a copy of my movie, have a look. And, uh, you know, six weeks later, uh, I have a completed score, um, in,
0: in my inbox. <laughs> wow. So, wow. And of course these days for, for, for small independent films like yours, or, or you know, I'm I'm, I'm guessing, uh, and a lot of others that are out there, you, you can't afford to have a, a full orchestra record it. It is you know, here's the technology again. It is pretty amazing what one can do with a with some equipment to recreate the full orchestra sound. Is that is that kind of what happens on your films? Is that uh, or do you actually bring in a whole orchestra to record a score?
1: I wish it's too expensive. <laughs> right? uh, it's too it's too costly. Um, yeah. So I've never I've never had the luxury of of, of using a a, a, a a full orchestra to do my my score, but you know again you're right, the technology is such that these composers have all these different samples and all these different ways of doing it, and then they spend time equalizing it, and making it sound good. And the scores that I've used over over the over the years uh, sound amazing. Um, I mean, I'm sure anybody who is a, a composer would listen to it and, and know that it's electronic and not actually the real instruments. But again, most people would, might not really notice it. You know, they just get involved in the, the passion and the the emotion of the music. And they're, uh, it's like a cinematographer, a cinematographer totally, totally knows, you know, they look at the image and they go, that's probably a red camera. And, um, yeah. but, you know, somebody a grandmother watching the movie in a cinema won't know <laughs> she's busy yeah. wondering whether the bad guy is going to get away with it or not
0: <laughs> let's uh let's get get into another cue um and i distinctly remember this uh music standing out to me in this film the film we're talking about is 48 hours uh written by composer uh james horner and i i vividly remember this movie and also the music that went with it uh, and I just loved it. So I love this choice. Tell us a little bit about uh, why you went about uh, choosing this for among your favorites.
1: Can we go back to this period? 48 Hours directed by Walter Hill. It was 1982. So the same year that Blade Runner came out. And I was 12 years old. And, you know, you know technically, 48 Hours, Blade Runner. I shouldn't have been allowed to see at twelve years old. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> they were restricted movies, but uh, you know, we, you find a way to see them. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I just remember—I just remember the 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 film was uh, you know it was a it was a gritty gritty kind of film, and the opening music for it, uh, which really set the tone for for what Walter Hill was trying to do, was the the truck barreling down the uh, the dusty road where all the convicts are on the, on the chain gang out there and, uh, and uh, you know, his music really, really fit very well. This dusty road. I could almost taste the dirt in my mouth. Um, (laughs) And it ends James Horner's music that again, creates that atmosphere. Um, You know, it's the music uh, that really creates that. We go, we go to, uh, we go to a movie to hear it really uh, rather than see it. It's the, it's the, you you're you're watching a single you're watching a screen but then you're surrounded by speakers and his
0: music just bounces around the cinema when you when you when you yeah. when you watch this movie it was great it was great let's uh let's relive those memories this is uh, from the film 48 hours it's the opening credits uh and it's written by james horner so what's uh, what's down the road for you what's what's in your future uh around the areas of uh, filmmaking and whatnot any anything in the pipeline you'd like to talk about uh well you know once we uh once we went into this lockdown with covid nineteen um
1: uh you know obviously filming kind of grinded to a halt but i just had uh i kind of hunkered down with my computer and final um Final draft, and was been writing. Um, I managed to. I signed a couple of deals to write some some uh, scripts, and then I had an older script called the the Sum of Random Chance, which is also a book that you can buy on Amazon. So if you look up my name and Sum of Random Chance, you can actually read it. Uh, mm-hmm. A producer in uh, Saskatchewan and Canada uh, optioned it for to looking into making it next year so um oh, wow. be something that i'm i'm signed to direct as well so so it's it'll, the next the next year i think it primarily is going to be doing a lot of writing and then uh maybe next year will when things kind of get better
0: uh we'll get back behind the camera oh wow that's exciting i hope i hope that i uh, hope that comes to fruition for you thank you oh my pleasure it um it's amazing how fast time flies we're we're basically out of time i uh i want to thank you for joining us today it's, it's been thoroughly interesting and uh enjoyable i hope it has been for you it's been great oh great and uh and i'll let our our patrons know the people that are part of our uh, patron family uh we're going to have some bonus information that coming from lee here that we'll be recording here in a minute and you'll be able to hear it to, through the patreon website uh Again, my thanks to Lee for taking the time to join us today. It was a fascinating conversation. Uh, and again, I'll remind every everyone, our listeners, about our Patreon program. But if you like what you've heard, we really would appreciate if you could support the program by looking us up on patreon.com slash what's the score. And of course we got our goodies that you can buy with our logo on it as well. So if you're interested in a coffee mug or a t-shirt, give it a look. That's a Red Bubble. That's FRW007. Uh uh, slash redbubble slash uh, dot com, I believe is how it goes. Look it up on our Facebook page. Anyway, that's going to wrap it up. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. Uh, and that means there's only one thing left to say is simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?